Ugh, Dave, DS9, would you stop making me feel? God! Oh, that final battle just... Oh, that hit me like a truck, didn't it? I guess that's the point of it. It probably won't surprise quite a few of you that this is actually among my favorite DS9 episodes. I hope to discuss why over the course of this rumination. I have no idea how long this is going to be. Probably going to be a short one, because you know, it's a good episode. A lot of people didn't want this episode to happen. They never named names in any of the interviews I've seen, but I think we could fairly say that Rick Berman was one of them, because Rick Berman has been a vocal opponent of the Dominion War from the very beginning. So, it's entirely possible that he was one of the people who was pushing for this episode to not be made. Somehow, and I'm really not sure how, the episode got made anyways. They even got Winrick Colby to direct it, which is significant because Mr. Colby actually fought in the Vietnam War and drew upon that experience in order to help guide the nature and tonality of the episode. They also pulled a few interesting tricks when it came to the design of the episode. For example, the music composer, I believe this is Chataway. Um, I should look that up. Who did the music for this one? <laughs> uh, the music was done off-camera, basically. Uh, excuse me, it's actually Terry Potts. My bad. Um... No, it wasn't Terry Potts. It was Paul Bailaregion. God, I'm sorry. I'm going to butcher that. It's someone I don't know. <clears throat> but whoever he is, he did a really good job with the music. But the trick involved that I was referencing is the fact that Mr. Paul didn't actually see the episode. Usually, even composers like Chadaway, who I mentioned earlier, or... You know, any of the other major Trek composers, will watch the episode and design a song kind of specific to the scene. Here they just decided to make music and let it play over, which actually I think works very well. It, this is going to sound strange, but it's actually kind of an approach that a video game would use when it comes to sound direction or music direction, for a good reason, because the whole intent is to basically layer a tone over an entire scene, regardless of what's happening in the scene. Kind of the opposite approach of the John Williams approach to music. Not saying that John Williams' approach is bad, just pointing out the variance in style. This, uh, <laughs> uh, this episode has a lot of guest stars. Uh, we have, let's see, Raymond Cruz. He was actually a very good inclusion as Vargas. Cruz adds that extra little layer of, you know, a soldier who's about to break because, because for whatever reason, he's really good at playing that kind of character. He even did that in Breaking Bad, for God's sakes. Um, or no, that wasn't Breaking Bad, was it? Gosh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say the not wrong thing. I, I think I'm thinking of Training Day. Anyways, point being, he plays that kind of crazy character very well. So, it adds a little bit of extra nuance to the thing. There's this wonderful scene where he is freaking out because this Starfleet officer who he couldn't stand, who wouldn't shut up, who he hated, was the one who ripped off his uniform, dressed as bandage, and then died right in front of him. Now that is a powerful scene, and all the more so because of all the emotions that are unstated there. Because what we see there is a man who is forced to think, Oh my God, what? A... I, I hated him and he died. I wasn't there for him. I couldn't do anything and he died. His last act was to help me to try and save my life. And of course, the guilt. I mean... Death tends to change perspective. I hate to say that, but it's true. And the idea of someone you never liked who suddenly dies, well, let's just say people tend to speak more positively of the dead once they're dead, even if they didn't have anything positive to say before they died. 
And so that guilt is gnawing there and that uncertainty. And most of all, and this is the most important part, obviously, watching someone die right in front of his eyes. I know we're kind of accustomed to this kind of concept because of fiction and because of, you know, the way that it's exposed. But in real life, watching someone die in real life right in front of you is actually pretty traumatizing. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Then, of course, we have Patrick Kilpatrick as Reese. Now, he manages a wonderful portrayal of the... Uh, the Inhuman. This is done deliberately on, on behalf of the writers and directors. They wanted him to come across as someone who had lost his humanity being down here. He was the least affable. He was the least friendly. He was all about just the mission. He was basically acting like if you put him in Jim Hadar makeup, you couldn't tell the difference, really. He was a robot doing his job. And he's the one who lived. Which is also done deliberately, by the way. But he still gets across. He, he does his role very, very well. There's a there's a intensity to the way he portrays it. I say a robot, but that's not quite accurate. This is a killing machine. The way he keeps those the necklace. Apparently, they wanted something worse, but that was as far as they were allowed to go. And of course, the way he uses that knife, which in the end actually ends up saving his life in the final melee. Fun. Then, of course, uh, we have. Oh, I didn't write down the actress's name. The woman who plays Larkin, the lieutenant, she comes across as someone who is just kind of completely overwhelmed by everything. But that's okay. We'll just keep kind of going, because what else can we do? This makes sense, since she's, based on what it looks like, I don't think she's even really in the command track. Or if she is, she's nowhere near ready for an actual command post. Consider that she was third down the line at this point, and is a lieutenant. Just straight lieutenant, not lieutenant commander. Yeah. Let's rewind a second. They beam down. The first thing that happens, the very first thing that occurs, is they are fired upon. Now, anyone paying attention will notice that it's phaser fire, which, of course, kind of makes you go, wait, what? And then they're like, wait a minute, that's phaser fire. This guy, guys, guys, it's us, it's us. This is Captain Benjamin Sisko. Hold your fire, hold your fire. I saw movement. Right? That is a, uh, that sets the tone right there. This is a group of people, it was specifically Vargas, but this is a group of people who are so shell-shocked that the sight of anything causes them to just lapse. Now, they also, this is also when Vargas states that they are only supposed to be here for regulation state 90 days maximum. That's at the high end. Then they're supposed to be rotated out. They have been here for about 150 days. Now... I don't know. I, I can't imagine that. I lack the ability to imagine that. I've been through some pretty horrible stuff in my life. But I have never been in a situation where I have been in constant military conflict, non-stop effectively, day after day, for 150 days. It's almost half a year just spent fighting. I can't even begin to imagine that. And I know that. And that kind of adds to the power of the episode, because you just sit, sit, this, sit here looking at it. This is why I'm pointing out all these details. The episode does a lot of little things to help get across the idea of how bad bad really is here. And again, why they got Colby involved. So, 
you know, they're like, okay, we've had the initial flurry and we figure out what's going on and we start looking at the array. We find out that this array is the big reason they're fighting. It has questionable strategic significance. Uh, to my knowledge, it's never mentioned again. And the whole point is they're t trying to tap into this thing, and have been for months, to try and use it as a way to tap into the communications of the Dominion. Okay, that would be extremely valuable uh, if they could get it to work, which they haven't. In point of fact, it's actually interesting to note that if they had just destroyed this thing, they would have also gained a significant strategic advantage in doing so. A more temporary one, but still a substantial strategic advantage, because this is an array. It's a bouncer, right? This is helping Jim Hadar and Dominion forces coordinate within this sector, or however far its reach is. But no, they wanted to try and turn it around to use it against the enemy, which is a nice little bit of foreshadowing, actually, if you think about it. And understandable, if not for the cost, which kind of makes you think about that one, doesn't it? And then there's a very quiet section. Large chunks of this episode have no music playing over them, but considerable effort is put into the audio design so that you can hear the wind just barely whistling through the caves, and you can just kind of hear people rustling in the distance or rocks falling. It's never truly silent, which is good, because actual silence is awkward. So instead we have quiet, which is far harder to manufacture in an audio design manner. So definite props to the audio direction in this episode as well as the music direction. Quark then talks to Nog. Now, Nog is still idolizing a bit, probably at least in part because of the fact that he still believes he can reach for this you know, Starfleet ideal that he, he does want. He isn't clearly ambitious. I jotted down the actual quote, if you'll forgive me. Let me tell you something about the humans, nephew. They're a wonderful, friendly people, as long as their bellies are full and their hollow suites are working. But take away, take away their creature comforts. Deprive them of food, sleep, sonic showers. Put their lives in jeopardy over an extended period of time. And those same friendly, intelligent, wonderful people will become as nasty and violent as the most bloodthirsty Klingon. You don't believe me? Look at those faces. Look at their eyes. It's a very powerful moment. Quark has been misused many times in this show. I don't think he was misused here. While he does get a little preachy, he kind of doesn't. In my opinion, he doesn't get preachy at all. In, in fact, I would say, in my opinion, he basically just serves as an outside perspective on things. And he helps to show a little bit of a highlight onto things. What he says to Nog is, let's be honest, true. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but a lot of who and what we are is down to our circumstances down to the things that we interact with, down to the pillars that we have built up in society and in our lives, intangible and tangible. Without those, well, we tend to revert a little bit. Without all of those, we tend to revert a lot. Remember my discussion about feral children a while ago? So the idea here is that what we're seeing is scared, angry, violent people who are willing to kill at a moment's notice in order to defend themselves. I'm not saying they're animals, because that's being dismissive. These are still intelligent human beings, and other races. It's more like what we're seeing is that any truly intelligent, sentient, sapient being with the adaptability necessary to reach that state can adapt to circumstances like this. It's just what you adapt to, that varies a little bit, doesn't it? 
I mentioned Reese, who adapts to being a killing machine. I mentioned Vargas, who adapts to becoming just a paranoid freak. Or uh, Larkin, who adapts to just kind of trying to, okay, yes, sir, orders, sir, and just trying to maneuver her way through the situation. I haven't mentioned Kellen yet. Kellen adapts by trying to inject humor into things, maintaining a light tone, affability. He's the nice guy of the group, and the one who you'd probably expect to live through this. Spoiler alert, he dies. He's not the first one to die. But he dies. Also, I, I, I know that I've, I've... I mean, I've already done the full rumination series in Babylon 5, but it's so hard to watch this episode after having dug... Ever since this episode came out, and then sometime after, it's like, Lanier! Oh my god! I mean, I know he's more known for, you know, Lost in Space or whatever, but I, I just hear in Lanier. The way he talks is pretty similar, too. It's just... He's a, he does a good job. He does a very good job of his role. Uh, Bill Moomy. Or Bill Mummy. I'm actually not sure how to pronounce it. I never have been 100% on that one. But he does a very good job with his role here. So that's how he adapts. This is when we find out about the mines. The Houdinis. Uh, this is masked. This is a very Dominion kind of a thing. We're going to kill you. We're not going to tell you how or when or where. It's going to happen randomly. Just so you know. Bye. Very Dominion. Subspace mines. Yeah. And what I like is everyone mentions how horrible and depraved and inhuman they are. Keep that in mind. So the Jem'Hadar do something actually really smart. This is another good example of tactics, not technobabble. Because the Jem'Hadar send several waves of holograms after them. Why? Because it will look, for all intents, like an invasion or an attack, at least for several seconds. And that's all they need to gauge the enemy forces, enemy positions. You know, it gets them tons of intel for free. Very cute. Quark then has another scene with, uh, with Nog. And he's talking to him about how, you know, th this war would have never happened if they had listened to the Alliance. Once again, I lament the lack of Alliance's interaction in the overall arc of the war for several seasons. Quark says we would have sat down, we would have negotiated, we would have traded across a table and tried to hammer out a peace that both sides could have accepted. Now, on the one hand, you might be thinking, eh, there's no way, the Dominion would ever accept such a thing. But on the other hand, Quark actually does have a point. Because the Ferengi Alliance as an aggregate is run by smart Ferengi. And smart Ferengi are uh, smart. They're not in it for profit or short-term gain. In short, they know how to actually negotiate. Now, I point that out in that matter, because one of the biggest things I made fun of over in Season 1 of TNG and in early DS9 was how bend-over-backwards-y the Federation was in its policy to foreign powers. This is something that I have been aggravated by many times. Now, not by bad writing, although arguably Season 1 of TNG there was some bad writing involved, but my point being that is a deliberate intent on the behalf of many writers to write the Federation as... I'm just going to say this as bluntly as possible, pansies. Not because they have to be strong, and not because they have to, to fight and kill, and that's the only way to be an organization. No, 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 no. But because negotiation is about a, a combination of many factors, which include being willing to give and being willing to take, being understanding and being strong. You need both, or all, more accurately. And the Federation leaned way too heavily on the... Uh, uh, not not pacification. Uh, 
there's a term for that where you're doing all you can to uh, appeasement. They, they, they leaned way too hard onto the side of appeasement rather than actual negotiation. I've said many times that the Federation is in many ways to re responsible for the Dominion War going the way it did and going as badly as it did. They should have provoked the war much earlier and on their own terms, instead of just bending over backwards constantly, allowing the Dominion to commit war crime after war crime on both the microscopic and the macroscopic scale, and just saying, well, okay, yeah, sure, we'll just keep letting your ships coming through the wormhole. Why not? It's not like we have any reason to stop you, right? They only went to war at the absolute last minute, and I have argued for years that that was a huge mistake. And the reason the Dominion War was so bloody and so damaging was because the Federation let it get way too far before they decided to start doing anything about it. I have also argued for years that the only reason the ship production was ready to go for the Dominion War on the Federation side was a combination of Wolf 359 and Section 31. I've already talked about that extensively, so I'm just going to move on. Point being, Quark's point about this is, is valid in its own way. But that's okay, because what, what, what Nog is is a soldier. He's going to go out and he's going to do his duty, and he's going to work, and that's going to be great, and then he gets shot in the leg and he gets dragged in. Now, I want to actually share something real quick. Uh, let me pull it up, because this is a transcript from an interview from Ronald D. Moore from, by the IGN Film Force back in December 6th of 2003. Just citing my sources here. And... Uh, Siege of AR 558 and the upcoming It's Only a Paper Moon. Both of these are being brought up here. Uh, to quote Ronald D. Moore, I remember one particularly insane argument that Ira and Rick had when Nog was injured and ended up losing a leg. There was this ridiculous, extended argument that I was in the room while Ira was on the phone. We had written the draft where he'd lost both legs and Rick was appalled. We can't lose the character's legs. And we were like, no, we've got to. We've got to have somebody who's injured in this war, who's not just a guest or in the background. It was a very important point. And the argument got to the point where they were arguing about, well, does it have to be one leg or two? Does it have to be above the knee or below the knee? It was like they were negotiating where Nog was going to lose his leg. It was just absurd. <laughs> I just wanted to share that little anecdote. Um, especially because if you think about it, it kind of does shine a highlight into how hard Ira and Moore and Be Beamler, I wish I knew how to pronounce his name, and all these people were fighting to keep this show the way it was. There was a constant infighting thing going on during the production of D-Space Nine. It's, it's almost a tragedy, but at the same time, it probably in part is responsible for why the show is as good as it is. After all, creative, creativity does have to be restrained at some point or another, otherwise it's just going to go completely off the rails and we're going to get bad, to be blunt about it. Instead, what we get is this. Nog is sitting on Lang on that thing, and he's giving his report, and he's apologizing to Cisco that it's his fault that he got shot by the enemy. Because of course he thinks it's his fault. He feel, of course he feels guilty. Why wouldn't he? And, um, well, there's this little bit right at the end, and now this was done deliberately, I know, so this isn't just my analysis. Uh, Aaron Eisenberg kind of knew where his character was going, and he wanted there to be a crack in his facade. So as he asks, is it worth it? You can just see, if you pay attention to his face, Eisenberg's face, Nog's face, he's just, hey, this is worth it, right? This is all going to be worth it? And, and all, all Cisco can say is, I hope to God it is. Because oh, he's not even sure. This is a thing that might give them an edge. Maybe. Yeah. 
Cisco's journey through this episode is interesting because what's happening is Cisco is being forced point blank range to acknowledge the paradox of leadership, which I've actually talked about many times. The paradox of leadership is that you have to acknowledge the individual and the organization at the same time. You have to think about the many and the few. You have to think about the microscopic and the macroscopic. You cannot ignore either or both. That's the paradox of leadership, and that's why leading sucks, <laughs> to put it bluntly and simply. Cisco gets reports. At the end of this episode, he gets a 1,700 casualty reports. 1,738, I believe, is the number. And that's the macroscopic perspective. Keeping that array is the macroscopic perspective. Troop lines and moving positions around. That's macroscopic. Any of you ever play any strategy games? RTS, tactical-based? Anything relatively small? Uh, army, regiment, squad, unit? Anything like that? Can I share a story? I was playing uh, Warhammer 2, uh, Total War, once. And I was playing as the vampire faction, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. It's on stream. I actually don't remember the faction I was playing, but I know I was fighting against the dwarves, and they had superior everything. And so I saw the oncoming force, and what was happening was basically I was going to lose a city and a whole province because an enemy force was coming through that was going to claim the, the city, and I didn't have the right troops in position. I had another army, which was back here, and I had one very small force up there, much smaller, way overwhelmed. And I remember thinking, I, okay, and I looked at that, and my tactical brain took over for a few seconds, and I re and then I came back, and I was like, I can't win this. I cannot win this. And so my choices are to try and retreat, or to try and make them pay in blood, to force them to fight and crawl over every inch of bloody terrain, which is what I ended up doing. Funny story, that, that victory... <laughs> that loss, because they did eventually wipe out my unit, did actually cause them to take such severe losses that they weren't able to take the city in time for my other unit to intercept them. In short, from the macroscopic perspective, that was a win. But I'll never forget thinking about what it would be like to be one of those little troops. I mean, granted, I was a vampire, so I had undead, but you get the point. Being one of those little individual units, watching the incoming forces, knowing you're going to lose. Now, bring that up in this episode, because that's exactly how they portray the final battle. They decloak the mines, which are everywhere, by the way. Wonderfully chilling, the way they portray that. Just Absolutely everywhere. There's some buried in the sand. There's tons hovering all over the place. Just swarming with them. They reposition them. Ruthless, horrible, inhuman weapon that we're going to use now. That we're going to use. They, they look a lot friendlier because we can use them now. And you get the parallel between this and the array earlier. And they put it out there. And there's a nice, long period of waiting. Just the horrible tension of waiting. Bashir plays the music. Bombs start to go off in the distance. And the battle music is all quiet and morose as the battle plays out. What's interesting is this episode continues a thread that hasn't really been present all that much in Season 7 from Season 6. The relationship between the tangible and the intangible. We see in this episode concepts of morality and decency, ethics and honor, basically being flung right out the window in the favor of the tangible, but we also see how the intangible directly affects the tangible and vice versa. 
the horrors of actually functionally being here are completely breaking these people down, affecting their intangible side by the tangible. But the reverse is also true. Cisco cannot abandon these people, and thus his intangibility forces him to interact with the tangibility. And it, goes, it just goes back and forth. It's all over the place in this episode. It's wonderfully done. And so that final charge happens, a much superior Jem'Hadar force charging at them, literally charging. You could tell what happened, too. They don't need to show it. The moment the Jem'Hadar started getting hit by the mines, they realized what was going on, assumed there would be more or worse, and decided to charge full out our lives for the Founders. Not like they care, they care about dying, right? The episode ends. Actually, before that, I want to point out one last thing. Quark is there, and he's hearing the battle going on. And he's got a weapon on him because he's defending Nog. For all his comments, for all his statements about the external perspective, and, you know, we would have negotiated these people are the most... What was the quote? Oh, hang on. It was um, as nasty and as violent as the most bloodthirsty Klingon. Then he turns and shoots a Jem'Hadar right in the chest. See, adaptability is kind of the key point there. This is not what Quark would choose, but it is what he is adapting to in order to save the life of his nephew. And don't you tell me Quark doesn't care about Nog. I've heard that argument before. This episode I, I praise because it specifically is ugly, dirty, and dark. It doesn't cross any lines for me. It could have. It would be very easy for this to cross lines. It doesn't. Instead, it just shows the microscopic perspective of a macroscopic affair. What we see is the view from the trenches. And Cisco at the end mentions this. You know, those can't just be names. We have to remember. We have to remember that those aren't just names. And you notice Kira doesn't even say anything. She just looks sympathetic. Of course she does. She's already been through all this. This is a damned fine episode. And I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on it. I'll see you guys next time.